Chapter Twelve of Outwitting the Hun: My Escape from a German Prison Camp by Pat O'Brien. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twelve: The Forged Passport. For obvious reasons, I cannot describe the man to whom I applied for the passport, nor the house in which he lived. While, in view of what subsequently happened, I would not be very much concerned if he got into trouble for having dealt with me, I realized that the hardships he had endured in common with all the other inhabitants of that conquered city may possibly have distorted his ideas of right and justice, and I shall not deliberately bring further disaster on him by revealing his identity. This man, we will call him Heiliger, because that is as unlike his name as it is mine, was very kind to me on that memorable night when I aroused him from his sleep, and in a few words of explanation told him of my plight. He invited me inside, prepared some food for me, and, putting on a dressing-gown, came and sat by me while I ate, listening with the greatest interest to the short account I gave him of my adventures. He could speak English fluently, and he interrupted me several times to express his sympathy for the sufferings I had endured. O'Brien, he said, after I had concluded my story, I am going to help you. It may take several days, perhaps as long as two weeks, but eventually we will provide the means to enable you to get into Holland. I thanked him a thousand times and told him that I didn't know how I could possibly repay him. Don't think of that, he replied, the satisfaction of knowing that I have aided in placing one more victim of the Huns beyond their power to harm him will more than repay me for all the risk I shall run in helping you. You'd better turn in now, O'Brien, and in the morning I'll tell you what I plan to do. He showed me to a small room on the second floor, shook hands with me, and left me to prepare for the first real night's rest I had been able to take in nearly two months. As I removed my clothes, and noticed that my knees were still swollen to twice their normal size, that my left ankle was black and blue from the wrench I had given it when I jumped from the train, and that my ribs showed through my skin, I realized what a lot I had been through. As a matter of fact, I could not have weighed more than 150 pounds at that time, whereas I had tipped the scales at 190 when I was with my squadron in France. I lost no time in getting into bed, and still less in getting to sleep. I don't know what I dreamed of that night, but I had plenty of time to go through the experiences of my whole life, for when I was aroused by a knock on the door, and Heiliger came in, in response to my invitation to enter, he told me that it was nearly noon. I had slept for nearly twelve hours. I cannot say that the thought did not run through my head that perhaps, after all, I was living in a fool's paradise, and that when Heiliger reappeared it would be with a couple of German soldiers behind him. But I dismissed such misgivings summarily, realizing that I was doing Heiliger an injustice to let such things enter my head even for an instant. I had no right to doubt his sincerity, and it would do me no good to entertain such suspicions. If he were going to prove treacherous to me, I was powerless anyway to cope with him. In a few moments my host appeared with a tray containing my breakfast. I don't suppose I shall ever forget that meal. 
It consisted of a cup of coffee real coffee, not the kind I had had at Courtrai several slices of bread, some hot potatoes, and a dish of scrambled eggs. Every mouthful of that meal tasted like angel food to me, and Heiliger sat on the edge of the bed and watched me enjoying the meal, at the same time outlining the plans he had made for my escape. In brief, the scheme was to conceal me in a convent until conditions were ripe for me to make my way to the border. In the meanwhile, I was to be dressed in the garb of a priest, and when the time came for me to leave the city, I was to pretend that I was a Spanish sailor, because I could speak a little Spanish, which I had picked up on the coast. To attempt to play the part of a Belgian would become increasingly difficult, he pointed out, and would bring inevitable disaster in the event that I was called upon to speak. Heiliger said I would be given sufficient money to bribe the German guards at the Dutch frontier, and he assured me that everything would work out according to schedule. "'Yours is not the first case, O'Brien, we have handled successfully,' he declared. Only three weeks ago I heard from an English merchant who had escaped from a German detention camp and come to me for assistance, and whom I had been able to get through the lines.' His message, telling me of his safe arrival in Rotterdam, came to me in an indirect way, of course, but the fact that the plans we had made carried through without mishap makes me feel that we ought to be able to do as much for you. I told Heiliger I was ready to follow his instructions, and would do anything he suggested. I want to rejoin my squadron as soon as I possibly can, of course, I told him, but I realize that it will take a certain length of time for you to make the necessary arrangements, and I will be as patient as I can. The first thing to do, Heiliger told me, was to prepare a passport. He had a blank one, and it was a comparatively simple matter to fill in the spaces, using a genuine passport which Heiliger possessed as a sample of the handwriting of the passport clerk. My occupation was entered as that of a sailor. My birthplace we gave as Spain, and we put my age at thirty. As a matter of fact, at that time I could easily have passed for thirty-five, but we figured that with proper food and a decent place to sleep in at night, I would soon regain my normal appearance, and the passport would have to serve me, perhaps, for several weeks to come. Filling in the blank spaces on the passport was, as I have said, a comparatively easy matter, but that did not begin to fill the bill. Every genuine passport bore an official rubber stamp, something like an elaborate postmark, and I was at a loss to know how to get over that difficulty. Fortunately, however, Heiliger had half of a rubber stamp which had evidently been thrown away by the Germans and he planned to construct the other half out of the cork from a wine-bottle. He was very skillful with a penknife, and although he spoiled a score or more of corks before he succeeded in getting anything like the result he was after, the finished article was far better than our most sanguine expectations. Indeed, after we had pared it over here and there, and removed whatever imperfections our repeated tests disclosed, we had a stamp which made an impression so closely resembling the original that, without a magnifying glass, we were sure it would have been impossible to tell that it was a counterfeit. 
Heiliger procured a camera and took a photograph of me to paste on the passport in the place provided for that purpose, and we then had a passport which was entirely satisfactory to both of us, and would, we hoped, prove equally so to our friends the Huns. It had taken two days to fix up the passport. In the meanwhile, Heiliger informed me that he had changed his plans about the convent, and that instead he would take me to an empty house where I could remain in safety until he told me it was advisable for me to proceed to the frontier. This was quite agreeable to me, as I had had some misgivings as to the kind of a priest I would make, and it seemed to me to be safer to remain aloof from everyone in a deserted house than to have to mingle with people or come in contact with them even with the best of disguises. That night I accompanied Heiliger to a fashionable section of the city where the house in which I was to be concealed was located. This house turned out to be a four-story structure of brick. Heiliger told me that it had been occupied by a wealthy Belgian before the war, but since 1914 it had been uninhabited, save for the occasional habitation of some refugee whom Heiliger was befriending. Heiliger had a key and let me in, but he did not enter the house with me, stating that he would visit me in the morning. I explored the place from top to bottom as well as I could without lights. The house was elaborately furnished, but of course the dust lay a quarter of an inch thick almost everywhere. It was a large house, containing some twenty rooms. There were two rooms in the basement, four on the first floor, four on the second, five on the third, and five on the top. In the days that were to come I was to have plenty of opportunity to familiarize myself with the contents of that house, but at the time I did not know it, and I was curious enough to want to know just what the house contained. Down in the basement there was a huge pantry, but it was absolutely bare except of dust and dirt. A door which evidently led to a sub-basement attracted my attention and I thought it might be a good idea to know just where it led, in case it became necessary for me to elude searchers. In that cellar I found case after case of choice wine. Heiliger subsequently told me that there were eighteen hundred bottles of it. I was so happy at the turn my affairs had taken, and in the rosy prospects which I now entertained, that I was half inclined to indulge in a little celebration then and there. On second thoughts, however, I remembered the old warning of the folly of shouting before you are well out of the woods, and I decided that it would be just as well to postpone the festivities for a while and go to bed instead. In such an elaborately furnished house I had naturally conjured up ideas of a wonderfully large bed with thick hair mattresses, downy quilts, and big soft pillows. Indeed, I debated for a while which particular bedroom I should honor with my presence that night. Judge of my disappointment, therefore, when, after visiting bedroom after bedroom, I discovered that there wasn't a bed in any one of them that was in a condition to sleep in. All the mattresses had been removed, and the rooms were absolutely bare of everything in the way of wool, silk, or cotton fabrics. The Germans had apparently swept the house clean. 
There was nothing to do, therefore, but to make myself as comfortable as I could on the floor; but as I had grown accustomed by this time to sleeping under far less comfortable conditions, I swallowed my disappointment as cheerfully as I could, and lay down for the night. In the morning Huyliger appeared and brought me some breakfast, and after I had eaten it he asked me what connections I had in France or England from whom I could obtain money. I told him that I banked at Cox & Company, London, and that if he needed any money I would do anything I could to get it for him, although I did not know just how things could be arranged. "'Don't worry about that, O'Brien,' he replied. "'We'll find a way of getting at it, all right. What I want to know is how far you are prepared to go to compensate me for the risks I am taking and for the service I am rendering you.' The change in the man's attitude stunned me. I could hardly believe my ears. "'Of course I shall pay you as well as I can for what you have done, Heiliger,' I replied, trying to conceal as far as possible the disappointment his demand had occasioned me. "'But don't you think that this is hardly the proper time or occasion to talk of compensation? All I have on me, as you know, is a few hundred francs. That, of course, you are welcome to.' and when I get back, if I ever do, I shall not easily forget the kindness you have shown me. I am sure you need have no concern about my showing my gratitude in a substantial way." "'That's all right, O'Brien,' he insisted, looking at me in a knowing sort of way. "'You may take care of me afterward, and then, again, you may not. I'm not satisfied to wait. I want to be taken care of now.' well what do you want me to do how much do you expect in the way of compensation how can i arrange to get it to you i am willing to do anything that is reasonable i want blank pounds he replied and he named a figure that staggered me if i had been lord kitchener instead of just an ordinary lieutenant in the rfc he would hardly have asked a larger sum perhaps he thought i was why my dear man i said smilingly thinking that perhaps he was joking you don't really mean that do you i certainly do o'brien and what is more he threatened i intend to get every cent i have asked and you are going to help me get it he pulled out an order calling for the payment to him of the amount he had mentioned and demanded that i sign it i waved it aside heiliger i said you have helped me out so far, and perhaps you have the power to help me further. I appreciate what you have done for me, although now I think I see what your motive was, but I certainly don't intend to be blackmailed, and I tell you right now that I won't stand for it. Very well, he said, it is just as you say, but before you make up your mind so obstinately, I would advise you to think it over. I'll be back this evening." My first impulse, after the man had left, was to get out of that house just as soon as I could. I had the passport he had prepared for me, and I figured that even without further help from him I could now get to the border without very much difficulty, and when I got there I would have to use my own ingenuity to get through. It was evident, however, that Heiliger still had an idea that I might change my mind with regard to the payment he had demanded, and I decided that it would be foolish to do anything until he paid me a second visit. 
At the beginning of my dealings with Huyliger I had turned over to him some pictures, papers, and other things that I had on me when I entered his house, including my identification disk, and I was rather afraid that he might refuse to return them to me. All day long I remained in the house without a particle of food other than the breakfast Heiliger had brought to me. From the windows I could see plenty to interest me and help pass the time away, but of my experiences while in that house I shall tell in detail later on, confining my attention now to a narration of my dealings with Heiliger. That night he appeared as he had promised. "'Well, O'Brien,' he asked as he entered the room where I was awaiting him, "'what do you say? Will you sign the order or not?' It had occurred to me during the day that the amount demanded was so fabulous that I might have signed the order without any danger of its ever being paid, but the idea of this man, who had claimed to be befriending me, endeavouring to make capital out of my plight, galled me so that I was determined not to give in to him, whether I could do so in safety or not. "'No, Heiliger,' I replied, "'I have decided to get along as best I can without any further assistance from you. I shall see that you are reasonably paid for what you have done, but I will not accept any further assistance from you at any price, and what is more, I want you to return to me at once all the photographs and other papers and belongings of mine which I turned over to you a day or two ago. "'I'm sorry about that, O'Brien,' he retorted, with a show of apparent sincerity, "'but that is something I cannot do.' "'If you don't give me back those papers at once,' I replied hotly, "'I will take steps to get them, and damned quick, too.' "'I don't know just what you could do, O'Brien,' he declared coolly, but as a matter of fact, the papers and pictures you refer to are out of the country. I could not give them back to you if I wanted to. Something told me the man was lying. See here, Heiliger, I threatened, advancing toward him, putting my hand on his shoulder and looking him straight in the eye. I want those papers, and I want them here before midnight tonight. If I don't get them, I shall sleep in this place just once more and then at eight o'clock tomorrow morning i shall go to the german authorities give myself up show them the passport that you fixed up for me tell them how i got it and explain everything heiliger paled we had no lights in the house but we were standing near a landing at the time and the moonlight was streaming through a stained glass window the belgian turned on his heel and started to go down the stairs mind you I called after him, I shall wait for you till the city clock strikes twelve, and if you don't show up with those papers by that time, the next time you will see me is when you confront me before the German authorities. I am a desperate man, Heiliger, and I mean every word I say." He let himself out of the door, and I sat on the top stair and wondered just what he would do. Would he try to steal a march on me and get in a first word to the authorities, so that my story would be discredited when I put it to them? Of course, my threat to give myself up to the Huns was a pure bluff. While I had no desire to lose the papers which Heiliger had, 
and which included the map of the last resting-place of my poor chum Rainy, I certainly had no intention of cutting off my nose to spite my chin by surrendering to the Germans. I would have been shot as sure as fate, for after all I had been able to observe behind the German lines, I would be regarded as a spy and treated as such. At the same time I thought I had detected a yellow streak in Heiliger, and I figured that he would not want to take the risk of my carrying out my threat, even though he believed there was but a small chance of my doing so. If I did, he would undoubtedly share my fate, and the pictures and papers he had of mine were really of no use to him, and I have never been able to ascertain why it was he wished to retain them, unless they contained something, some information about me, which accounted for his complete change of attitude toward me in the first place, and he wanted the papers as evidence to account to his superiors or associates for his conduct toward me. When he first told me that the plan of placing me in a convent disguised as a priest had been abandoned, he explained it by saying that the cardinal had issued orders to the priests to help no more fugitives, and I have since wondered whether there was anything in my papers which had turned him against me and led him to forsake me after all he had promised to do for me. For perhaps two hours I sat on the staircase, musing about the peculiar turn of my affairs, when the front door opened and Heiliger ascended the stairs. "'I have brought you such of your belongings as I still had, O'Brien,' he said softly. "'The rest, as I told you, I cannot give you. They are no longer in my possession.' I looked through the little bunch he handed me. It included my identification disc, most of the papers I valued, and perhaps half of the photographs. "'I don't know what your object is in retaining the rest of my pictures, Heiliger,' I replied. "'But, as a matter of fact, the ones that are missing were only of sentimental value to me, and you are welcome to them if you want them. We'll call it a heat.' I don't know whether he understood the idiom, but he sat down on the stairs just below me and cogitated for a few moments. O'Brien, he started finally, I'm sorry things have gone the way they have. I feel sorry for you, and I would really like to help you. I don't suppose you will believe me, but the matter of the order which I asked you to sign was not of my doing. However, we won't go into that. The proposition was made to you, and you turned it down, and that's an end of it. At the same time, I hate to leave you to your own resources, and I am going to make one more suggestion to you for your own good. I have another plan to get you into Holland, and if you will go with me to another house, I will introduce you to a man who I think will be in a position to help you. How many millions of pounds will he want for his trouble? I asked sarcastically. You can arrange that when you see him. Will you go? I suspected there was something fishy about the proposition, but I felt that I could take care of myself, and decided to see the thing through. I knew Heiliger would not dare to deliver me to the authorities, because of the fact that I had the tell-tale passport, which would be his death-knell as well as my own. Accordingly I said I would be quite willing to go with him whenever he was ready, and he suggested that we go the next evening. 
I pointed out to him that I was entirely without food, and asked him whether he could not arrange to bring or send me something to eat while I remained in the house. "'I'm sorry, O'Brien,' he replied, "'but I'm afraid you'll have to get along as best you can. When I brought you your breakfast this morning, I took a desperate chance.' If I had been discovered by one of the German soldiers entering this house with food in my possession, I would not only have paid the penalty myself, but you would have been discovered too. It is too dangerous a proposition. Why don't you go out by yourself and buy your food at the stores? That would give you confidence, and you'll need plenty of it when you continue your journey to the border." There was a good deal of truth in what he said, and I really could not blame him for not wanting to take any chance to help me, in view of the relations between us. "'Very well,' I said. "'I've gone without food for many hours at a time before, and I suppose I shall be able to do so again. I shall look for you to-morrow evening.' The next evening he came, and I accompanied him to another house not very far from the one in which I had been staying and not unlike it in appearance. It, too, was a substantial dwelling-house, which had been untenanted since the beginning, save perhaps for such occasional visits as Heiliger and his associates made to it. Heiliger let himself in, and conducted me to a room on the second floor, where he introduced me to two men. One, I could readily see by the resemblance, was his own brother. The other was a stranger very briefly they explained to me that they had procured another passport for me a genuine one which would prove far more effective in helping to get me to the frontier than the counterfeit one they had manufactured for me i think i saw through their game right at the start but i listened patiently to what they had to say of course you will have to return to us the passport we gave you before we can give you the real one said heiliger's brother i haven't the slightest objection i replied if the new passport is all you claim for it will you let me see it there was considerable hesitation on the part of heiliger's brother and the other chap at this why i don't think that's necessary at all mr o'brien said the former you give us the old passport, and we will be very glad to give you the new one for it. Isn't that fair enough? It may be fair enough, my friends, I retorted, seeing that it was useless to conceal further the fact that I was fully aware of their whole plan, and why I had been brought to this house. It may be fair enough, my friends, I said, but you will get the passport that I have here, patting my side and indicating my inside breast pocket, only off my dead body. I suppose the three of them would have made short work of me then and there if they had wanted to go the limit, and no one would ever have been the wiser. But I had gone through so much, and I was feeling so mean toward the whole world just at that moment, that I was determined to sell my life as dearly as possible. I have that passport here, I repeated, and I'm going to keep it. If you gentlemen think you can take it from me, you are welcome to try. To tell the truth, I was spoiling for a fight, and I half wished they would start something. The man who had lived in the house had evidently been a collector of ancient pottery, for the walls were lined with great pieces of earthenware which had every earmark of possessing great value. They certainly possessed great weight. 
I figured that if the worst came to the worst, that pottery would come in mighty handy. A single blow with one of those big vases would put a man out as neatly as possible, and as there was lots of pottery and only three men, I believed I had an excellent chance of holding my own in the combat which I had invited. I had already picked out in my mind what I was going to use, and I got up, stood with my back to the wall, and told them that if they ever figured on getting the passport, then would be their best chance. Apparently they realized that I meant business, and they immediately began to expostulate at the attitude I was taking. One of the men spoke excellent English. In fact, he told me that he could speak five languages, and if he could lie in the others as well as I know he did in my own tongue, he was not only an accomplished linguist, but a most versatile liar into the bargain. They argued and expostulated with me for some time. "'My dear fellow,' said the linguist, "'it is not that we want to deprive you of the passport. Good heavens, if it will aid you in getting out of the country, I wish you could have six just like it. But for our own protection you owe it to us to proceed on your journey as best you can without it, because as long as you have it in your possession you jeopardize our lives too.' Don't you think it is fairer that you should risk your own safety rather than place the lives of three innocent men in danger? That may be as it is, my friends, I retorted, as I made my way to the door, and I am glad you realize your danger. Keep it in mind, for in case any of you should happen to feel inclined to notify the German authorities that I am in this part of the country, think it over before you do so. Remember always that if the Germans get me, they get the passport, too. And if they get the passport, your lives won't be worth a damn. When I tell the history of that clever little piece of pasteboard, I will implicate all three of you, and whomever else is working with you. And as I am an officer, I rather think my word will be taken before yours. Good night. The bluff evidently worked because I was able to get out of the city without molestation from the Germans. I have never seen these men since. I hope I never shall, because I am afraid I might be tempted to do something for which I might afterward be sorry. I do not mean to imply that all Belgians are like this. I had evidently fallen into the hands of a gang who were endeavoring to make capital out of the misfortunes of those who were referred to them for help. In all countries there are bad as well as good, and in a country which has suffered so much as poor Belgium, it is no wonder if some of the survivors have lost their sense of moral perspective. I know the average poor peasant in Belgium would divide his scanty rations with a needy fugitive sooner than a wealthy Belgian would dole out a morsel from his comparatively well-stocked larder. Perhaps the poor have less to lose than the rich if their generosity or charity is discovered by the Huns. There have been many Belgians shot for helping escaped prisoners and other fugitives, and it is not to be wondered at that they are willing to take as few chances as possible. A man with a family, especially, does not feel justified in helping a stranger when he knows that he and his whole family may be shot or sent to prison for their pains. 
Although I suffered much from the attitude of Huyliger and his associates, I suppose I ought to hold no grudge against them in view of the unenviable predicament which they are in themselves. End of chapter 12